Um, We're going to have our Bible reading now. Um, It's Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 19, and it's on page 976 in the Red Bibles. Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, He is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he's a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Thanks, Sean. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Uh, If we haven't met yet, my name's Joe Standwick. I work as a student pastor here, and uh, it's great to be opening the Bible with you today. Now, a question that people often ask themselves is, will this world ever get better? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Will this world ever get better? I bought a couple of newspapers uh, on the way to church this morning. I noticed that I haven't had time yet to put the smiling face of Emma Raducanu on the uh, front page of the newspapers. But just to flick through some of the headlines this morning, it was a clear reminder to me of the brokenness of the world. Photos of people remembering 9-11, stories of financial scandals, death squads, systemic abuse. We're forced to ask, will this world ever get better? 
Now, there are some things that have improved over the last century or so. Life expectancy, child mortality, the spread of democracy. But we don't have to search far, do we, to see and experience the ruin and sadness and evil that plagues this world and that plagues our lives. Conflict might end in one country. It starts up in another Illness is cured in one area and a new virus emerges. Suffering is relieved in one place, but then worsens in another. Will this world ever get better? Now, with all the good that is done to tackle these problems, we surely need to acknowledge that no amount of human effort and no amount of human money is able to right every wrong and heal every hurt and mend every mess. But the claim of our Bible passage today is that there is a solution, one that is complete and sufficient and lasting. I read an essay this week uh, which was called Seven Ways to Fix the World. And it won't surprise you to hear that missing from that list was the name Jesus Christ. And yet the claim of the Bible is that Jesus can and will remake this broken world, that he is able to right every wrong and to heal every hurt and to mend every mess and that we can be part of it. Now, if that seems laughable to you this morning, then let me invite you to take another look at Jesus as we read through this section of Matthew. And if you're a Christian already, then let me invite you as well to take a fresh look at Jesus and to be convinced again that he is the one our world needs. Hopefully you've got Matthew chapter 11 open in front of you. If not, please uh, turn back there. It's page 976. Now you'll see in Matthew chapter 11 verse 1 that Jesus has finished instructing his 12 disciples here and we now enter a new section of Matthew's gospel that begins here. Jesus is on his way now traveling, preaching and teaching in the towns of Galilee as we see in verse 1. This is a section we'll see over the next few weeks that helps us to grasp what Jesus has come to do. It's also a section that has rising opposition and tension as uh, people uh, sort of misunderstand what Jesus is here to do. Not everyone understands who he is and not everyone aligns with what he's doing. We're going to see this right away in our first few verses. So our first uh, point this morning, the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Have a look with me at verses 2 and 3. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, the John mentioned here is commonly known as John the Baptist. He arrived on the scene in Matthew chapter 3, but now he's been locked up in prison by King Herod. He can't get out to see Jesus, but he has heard um, from prison what Christ has been doing. Now, it's a reminder straight away in these verses um, of what Matthew has told us already in chapters 1 and 2, that Jesus is no ordinary man, but that he is the Christ. This title was used uh, last time in Matthew in chapter 2, but here it is again, meaning God's Messiah or God's King. Yet there are some doubts, aren't there, in John's mind about the identity of Jesus. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Something about the works of Christ have prompted John to ask that question from prison. 
Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, then this might come as a bit of a, a shock. How can John, John the Baptist, be doubting who Jesus is? Surely John, of all people, should know the identity of Jesus. Now, we're not told um, exactly why John felt the need to ask this question, other than the fact that he'd heard about the works of Christ. But I wonder if Matthew gives us some hints throughout the gospel about what's going on here. In chapter 3, for example, John announced that someone was coming after him who was more powerful than he was. That's what he said back in chapter 3. John said that he wasn't even worthy to get down on the floor and untie the straps of this person's sandals. He was that much more superior to John. And then John said this. Listen to these words um, from Matthew chapter 3. John talked about the coming one like this. He said, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a picture of judgment, isn't it? A farmer in those days, I'll put it on the screen, um, would hold a winnowing fork. I thought, you know, what is a winnowing fork? There's a winnowing fork. Um, and he'd, he'd clear the floor of the barn, gathering the wheat and then burning up all the excess that couldn't be used. And John said that in a similar way, the one who was coming would gather God's people to safety and bring judgment on those who have rejected the Lord. That is John's expectation of the one who is coming an expectation based on the promises in the Old Testament. The prophets of the Old Testament promised a time when God would come and right every wrong and bring justice on the earth. And so John hears about the works of Jesus, his deeds, his teaching, his miracles, and perhaps he wonders, where is the judgment that is coming? I can see salvation, I can see healing, but there's very little judgment, very little justice. What's going on? Are you the one who is coming or not? And the answer Jesus gives is not a simple yes or no, but he he points John again to the deeds that he's been performing. Look at what the Christ has been doing and let that be the answer to your question. Have a look at verse verse 4 with me. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I asked at the beginning, will this world ever get better? You've probably asked yourself that question as well. Well, here in verse 5 is a condensed picture of a world put right. A world restored. A better world. And in Matthew, Jesus has shown himself able to bring about all of these things. Um, Maybe this afternoon, go back over uh, chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's Gospel and you'll see these things that are talked about here in verse 5. He has caused two blind men to see, chapter 9, verse 27. He gave a paralyzed man the use of his legs again at the start of chapter 9. He cleansed a man with leprosy, declaring him clean, start of chapter 8. He healed a man who could not speak, chapter 9, verse 32. He brought a little girl back to life again, chapter 9, verse 25. And the poor have had good news preached to them. We see it in places like the Beatitudes in chapter 5, but really throughout the whole gospel. This is what people have been hearing and seeing with the arrival of Jesus. Illness, disease, paralysis, even death have been overcome by Jesus. It's a glorious picture of a world we long for, 
A glimpse of a world not plagued with sin or sickness or evil or death, a better world. It's a world that the people of God were longing for. To use the language of the Bible, these events mark the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Over the last week, I've talked to two or three people who are working on PhDs in different academic fields. And it's always interesting asking a PhD candidate to explain what they're working on because you can see them trying to explain complex ideas to, uh, you know, simple language to a novice like me, boiling it down to the basics. And if we were to do the same for the Old Testament and the message of the Old Testament, what is it all about? Well, one summary answer is the kingdom of God, or in Matthew's language, the kingdom of heaven. The Old Testament was looking forward to this time when God would come as king to establish his rule and to restore his world to how it's meant to be. Now, there are loads of places we could turn to to see this, but the place that Matthew has in mind here um, in verse 5 is the book of Isaiah. Verse 5 is steeped with rich Isaiah language. I'll put some of those references down on the sheet for you to have a look at in your own time. Let me just read one of them now, Isaiah um, chapter 35. Look with me on the screen um, what Isaiah promised would happen. He said, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is what God's people have been waiting for. They've been waiting for God himself to come with vengeance and salvation, bringing justice and restoration And you see what Isaiah prophesies and promises when God would come. Verses 5 and 6. Blind eyes will be opened, deaf ears will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute will shout for joy. It's a promise of a better world when God himself would come to establish his glorious kingdom. Thanks, Richard. So back uh, in Matthew 11, do you see the the magnitude of Jesus' claim? In his answer to John, he says... Look what's going on. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. He's announcing this new era in salvation history. He is the king of the promised kingdom. All of his miraculous deeds point to that reality. Now you might be thinking, if that is true, that Jesus has brought the kingdom of heaven, then why is this world still so broken? If the kingdom of heaven has arrived, then it certainly doesn't look like it. There's still blindness, paralysis, sickness, deafness, death. Jesus might have dealt with these things back then, but he doesn't seem to be doing anything about them right now. Now, to answer that, I wonder if an illustration uh, might help us here. Imagine you're redecorating your home, and you want to freshen it up with some new paint on the walls, and you want to make sure before you spend a lot of money on paint and you uh, do it on all the walls of your house, that the colours you're choosing will look good on the walls. Now, Natalie and I get around that problem by painting everything magnolia. Um, You might be more adventurous than we are. Um, And so you might head out to the shops and buy yourself a little tester pot of paint. 
It allows you, doesn't it, to paint a small section on the wall and to get a taste for what the whole wall will be like if it's covered in that colour. Well, the arrival of Jesus is a bit like that. He brings the kingdom of heaven, and we can see it as we read the Gospels. He reveals to us a better world, but the work is not yet finished. The whole creation is awaiting its final coat of paint. One day soon, Jesus will return, and the kingdom of heaven will be a reality across the world. At that moment, we will see God's judgment, and we will see God's salvation. And our response to Jesus now will determine where we will spend our eternities. That's what Jesus teaches us in verse 6. Have a look at verse 6. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Again, we've got another Old Testament idea here of, of blessing. It speaks of peace and happiness and wholeness. It's available for those who live in right relationship with their God, for those who are part of his people and part of this kingdom. And so if we want to be part of this better world that Jesus has come to bring, if we want to experience God's blessing, then we need to make sure that we don't fall away on account of Jesus. Now, another way of translating that verse is, blesses the person who does not stumble on account of Jesus. Now, John the Baptist, we've already seen, was in danger, wasn't he, of missing the significance of Jesus Christ. And we'll see in a few verses that this was not just a problem for John, but a problem for the whole generation who was listening at that time. They were stumbling over Jesus, missing who he was, not grasping hold of what he'd come to do. And Jesus is saying it's only those who respond rightly to him who will live in God's better world, under God's blessing for all eternity. Is Jesus the one who was to come, John asks. Well, I hope you've seen that the answer is yes. He is the, the promised one who has come to bring the kingdom of heaven to a broken world. And the next few verses are really an opportunity for us to um, hammer that point home. And Jesus does this by turning our attention away from him and onto John the Baptist. The ministry of Jesus has shown that the kingdom of heaven has arrived, and the ministry of John the Baptist points to that same reality. So let's think together next about the advancement of the kingdom of heaven in verses 7 to 15. Come, come to verse 7 with me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Well, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now, you might notice that um, Jesus asks three identical questions in these verses. Um, what did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? In chapter 3, the whole of Jerusalem and all Judea went out to see John the Baptist and were baptized by him. But now John is in prison, remember, and so people might have been questioning the significance of John and his message. And so Jesus wants to remind them of who John is. Verse 7 reminds them that he was not a timid man. Now, read swayed by the wind is a person um, swayed to and fro by the opinions of people. They didn't go out to see a person like that, did they? John was a man of firm conviction who was teaching about the kingdom of heaven. 
nor was he a worldly man, verse 8. They didn't go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes. No, those sorts of people are in the palaces of kings, Jesus says, not in the middle of the wilderness. And he couldn't really say, if you know John's clothing, that it was clothes that were fit for a king, camel's hair and leather belts and other things. What then did they go out to see? Well, we're getting closer with verse 9. A prophet? Yes, Jesus says, but more than a prophet. And then verse 10, Jesus quotes some Malachi's prophecy um, in Malachi chapter 3. Like Isaiah, Malachi looked forward to the coming of the Lord. And do you see that right before the Lord's arrival, a messenger would come to prepare the way? Now, a few years ago, I went to watch um, the Tour of Britain, which is a cycle race that happens just before um, the Tour de France, and it was, it was nearby. And um, a friend and I cycled at one of the climbs in Yorkshire, and we settled in a good spot at the top of this climb where we knew that the riders were going to come up um, a few hours later. And before the riders come, I don't know whether you've, you've been to an event like this, but there's a massive convoy of cars and vans that come before you get to the riders, you know, sponsors of the event who throw out hats and sweets, um, sometimes cycling jerseys and, and things that are um, more expensive. But gradually, as we stood by the side of the road, the sponsors faded away and other cars took their place, support cars for the various teams, camera crews. And then right at the end of the convoy was a, a motorbike with a person on the back holding a video camera, filming what was behind. We knew that the riders were coming. People were now craning their necks, waiting for the moment that they'd passed by. And there it was, a mass of bikes sped past us. We could see the faces of the riders, their concentration, their athleticism. And then 30 seconds later, it was over, and we all went home. Um, it's a strange spectator sport, some might say. Well, we can think of John, I think, a bit like that last motorbike. He was the, the final messenger in a long line of messengers. He came at a pivotal moment in salvation history. When John came announcing the coming of the Lord in the wilderness, every person should have been craning their necks. The time has come. The old era is about to pass away. Which is why Jesus describes him like he does in verse 11. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Isn't that an astonishing thing to say? Now, before John, there was Alexander the Great, King David, Julius Caesar, Cicero, Moses. But among those born of women, John is the greatest. Why? Well, because he held a crucial place in God's salvation plan as the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And yet, even though he had a special plan, as we, a special role in God's plans, as we see here, we, we also need to see that he had a support role as well. I remember going along to a music concert in Birmingham when I was a teenager, and at the beginning of the night, the MC announced the acts that were going to be playing for that evening, and there was a loud cheer for the first support act, then there was an even louder cheer for the second support act, but when the headline act was announced, it was just me and a friend who cheered, and we realized nobody's here to see the headline act apart from us. Now, you might think, given what Jesus has said about John in verse 11, the greatest person who has ever been born, that maybe we should give three cheers for the support act. But look at the second half of verse 11 with me. There has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, all the way through Matthew's gospel, Nathan pointed us to a passage earlier. Jesus has been... Um, interacting with people who would have been considered the least 
in this society. We'll see later that people call Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners because he spent time with people that nobody else wanted to spend time with. He showed compassion towards people who were on the edges of society. But even the least in the kingdom of heaven, the most insignificant, the most overlooked, is greater than John the Baptist. That person is part of the new reality that Jesus is bringing That person enjoys the rich blessings of being part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's not that John the Baptist wasn't great or that he was somehow outside of the kingdom. I don't think that's the point that Jesus was making. There was no one greater up until that time. But he's saying that now the promised kingdom is here. The very least in the kingdom of heaven has a place of inexpressible honor. John stood on the brink of the new age as the last of the prophets. He was the hinge between the time of promise and the time now of fulfillment. And the next few verses um, help us to unpack that very idea. Come with me to verses um, 12 to 15. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, we're going to come back to verse 12 in a moment, but I want to look at verses 13 and 14 first, because I think they help to explain what's going on in verse 12. Verse 13, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now, this is a shorthand way of talking about the whole Old Testament, the prophets and the law. And like uh, pressure might build up in a a bottle of Coke as you shake it, the Old Testament prophecies and promises built up and up and up until they finally exploded into reality. That's the time that Jesus' hearers are in, the time of fulfillment, as we've already seen. And verse 14 uh, really backs up that point. Look at verse 14. If you're willing to accept it, He is the Elijah who was to come, and he here um, is John the Baptist. Now, that seems a bit strange um, for Jesus to say, until we understand that he's referring here to another promise in Malachi. We've already had Malachi uh, chapter 3 with the messenger in verse 10. Well, this messenger is talked about in a different way in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Have a look on the screen, Malachi 4, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So on the grand timetable of God's salvation, right before God himself would come, that time when the kingdom of heaven would arrive, God promised to send the messenger, Malachi chapter 3, who's referred to here as the prophet Elijah. Now it's not that Uh, Elijah would be reincarnated and will come back to earth, but that a prophet like Elijah is going to come. A prophet who would look like Elijah, who would have a role like Elijah, who's John the Baptist. So here are just other reminders to us that this significant moment in history has arrived. We have moved from the old era to the new era with the coming of the messenger and now the coming of King Jesus. With that in mind, I think we're better able to think about um, verse 12. Let's read verse 12 again. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Now, in the time between 
John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus says two things have happened. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Now, I've discovered this week that this is a very hard verse to translate and a very hard verse to understand. And if you've got a different, difficult, uh, sorry, a different uh, Bible translation in front of you, you might spot that there are some differences in translation. To put it simply, should we understand these things positively or negatively? Are these good things or bad things? The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing, could be faithfully translated. The kingdom of heaven has been violently opposed. One is a positive take, the other a negative. We could also take the second half of the verse in a positive or a negative sense. Is it a good thing for forceful people to take hold of the kingdom? Or is that a way of talking about opposition to the kingdom? So what you end up with are four possible readings of this verse. It might be two positive statements. It might be a positive, then a negative. It might be a negative, then a positive. Or it might be a negative and a negative. Now, I think the issues are are quite finely balanced. And if you read other translations, then I think you'll you'll realize that. But what makes best sense of this verse to me, given its relationship to verses 13 and 14, is to take them both as positive statements. If all that Jesus has said is true so far in this passage, that he is the promised king who is ushering in God's promised kingdom, then it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that this kingdom would be forcefully advancing. How could it do otherwise? Evil is being cast out. Sickness is being healed. Sinners are being saved. When Jesus comes as the king of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven forcefully advances. And forceful men Take hold of it. Now, that seems a bit harder to understand because it sounds more negative, doesn't it? But I think it would be strange for Matthew to use the same word in the first half of verse 11 in a positive sense and then switch to a negative sense in the second half of the verse. So what I think is going on here is that as the kingdom of heaven advances forcefully, there are some who will do everything possible to enter it. Some who will understand the significance of the arrival of Jesus and who will do all they can to grasp hold of that kingdom for themselves. Sometimes in films you watch as a person runs alongside a train, desperate to jump on to escape to safety. That person knows that they need to make every effort to grasp hold of the railing on the train and to to get onto it before it's too late. Well, that's what it's like for the person who understands the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. They hear the words of Jesus, they see the arrival of the kingdom, and they do what Jesus urges in verse 15. They have ears to hear. Like we saw in verse 6, our response to Jesus is absolutely crucial. Will we have ears to hear his message? Or will we side with the people who refuse to acknowledge Jesus. That's what we're going to think about as we come to our final few verses of this passage. How will we we respond to what Jesus has come to do? We've seen the arrival and the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. Now we're going to think about our attitude to the kingdom of heaven. Now by this point in the chapter, Jesus has taught us that the kingdom of heaven is here and that it's wonderful And that every person in this kingdom, including the very least, is in a place of blessing and honor. And yet in these last few verses, we also see how easy it is to shut our ears to Jesus and to fail to respond to the kingdom that he is bringing. So look with me at verses 16 and 17. 
To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Jesus compares this generation listening to children sitting in a marketplace. It's it's an ancient equivalent of a local town center where children and young people hang out and, and play. And as people pass by these children in the marketplace, the children play their flutes expecting people to dance to their tune. And they sing their their dirges expecting people to mourn as the children sing. Do you see that these children want to be the ones to call the shots? They want others to play to their tune. And that's exactly what Jesus' hearers are like when they respond to both Jesus and to John. Have a look at verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's a title for Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Do you see that this generation is not happy with John because they think he's too strict? And they're not happy with Jesus because they think he's not strict enough. They're never satisfied. They want God's messenger and God's king to play to their own tune. And we need to consider for a moment, I think, what lies behind that attitude. It's not really that they wanted John to be less strict, is it? Because if that was all it was, then they would have accepted Jesus. And it's not that they wanted Jesus to be more strict, because if that was the case, they would have accepted John. Like the child who will say, no, whatever their parent asks them to do, we've got one of those. Um, This is what these people are like. In their hearts, they have already decided to reject the kingdom of heaven. They're already set against God's king, so that whatever Jesus says and whatever Jesus does, they're ready to dismiss him. And that is so foolish, because John and Jesus have acted wisely. We see that at the end of verse 19. Wisdom is proved right by her actions. This generation criticizes the works of John and Jesus, but for those with ears to hear, their actions display the wisdom of God and fulfill the long-awaited plan of God. Deep down, this generation just doesn't want God to be God. They don't want John to be God's messenger. They don't want Jesus to be their king. And so like spoiled children in the marketplace, they try and call the shots so that they can ignore the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, we know that generations come and go. What defines one generation changes in the next generation. But this attitude of the heart is something that has defined every generation that has come after Jesus right up to today. By nature, we don't want God to be king. We don't want to admit that he is in charge, and we don't want to acknowledge that we have played a part in the brokenness of this world. The reality is every one of us has played the part of rebel, turning away from God, turning away from his King Jesus. Our generation is just like this generation here in Matthew. And so we've seen, haven't we, the glorious reality of a better world that Jesus offers. The problem is none of us deserve to be there. You and I don't deserve to live forever in the kingdom of heaven because we have refused 
to listen to God's king. The judgment that was promised in the Old Testament is a judgment that should fall on you and me. Which is why I want to conclude by returning to some of those words in verse 19. Remember that the criticism that was leveled at Jesus in verse 19 was that he was a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus spent time with the worst in society. We saw that earlier on in Matthew. He had meals with sinners. He welcomed sinners. He forgave sinners. And that caused real offense to those who wanted to call the shots. If Jesus is really God's king, why would he spend time with people like that? Why would he have anything to do with them? But do you see that that criticism of Jesus in verse 19 is actually our lifeline? Dane Ortland comments, uh, comments on this verse in his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, and he writes this. Though the crowds call him the friend of sinners as an indictment, the label is one of unspeakable comfort for those who know themselves to be sinners. We ridicule the fact that Jesus is a friend of sinners only if we think that we're not in that category. But as soon as we acknowledge what we did earlier in our confession, that we are rebel sinners against God, then our eyes will be open to the goodness of King Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will go to his death for sinners so that he can take the judgment from God that we deserve. His death becomes for us the gateway into the kingdom of heaven so that now Jesus can be called a friend of sinners. He doesn't just tolerate sinners, nor does he hold sinners at arm's length. No, just like he pulled up a chair for sinners when he walked on earth, he does the same for us today. If you come to Jesus confessing your sin, confessing your rebellion, he will welcome you gladly as his friend. He will give you a place in his eternal kingdom and he will be happy that you are there. And so as we end, let me return to that question I asked at the beginning. Will this world ever get better? I hope you've seen that um, our answer to that question has to revolve around the Lord Jesus Christ. With his arrival comes the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, a foretaste of the world that we all long for. No sickness, no sadness, no death. A world where God reigns as he ought to. And God is committed to populating that kingdom with sinners. Sinners like you and me who turn back to our rightful king. Will you come to the friend of sinners this morning? And if you've done that already, will you continue to trust that he will one day remake this broken world and you will be there too? Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. As we pray this, Father, we are praying for the return of Jesus. We are longing for that day when every mess will be mended and every hurt will be healed and when Jesus will reign in glory forever and ever. Thank you so much, Father, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. We confess that we would be utterly hopeless if Jesus were not a friend of sinners. 
And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to keep trusting in his promises. We thank you that a better world is coming. And we pray that each one of us here would lay hold of it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.